It is a great day in Boulder. The buffs are undefeated and we get to open the Bible. Yes. It's beautiful. We're so glad you're here, whether you're in the Worship Center or you're in Classic Calvary. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is our privilege every Sunday to open the Word of God together. If you don't have a Bible, if you don't own one, there is a white Bible that's in front of you in your seat. We would love you to take that as our gift to you. We want you to have the Bible. We want you to read the Bible. We want you to understand what God has said, and that's why we open it every week together to study it, to learn from God, to see more about Him, to become more like Him. You know, I think all of us have a friend who always spoils the end of a movie, or the one who always reads the bestseller list books first before you get a chance to do it, and then summarizes the entire plot, tells you what happens at the end, and then says, you know, you really should read it. And you say, "Uh, I feel like I already have. I hate to say it, but I'm going to be that guy today. Spoiler alert. We are going to start our study in Exodus chapter 2 with the final verses of this chapter. So if you have a Bible, grab it and turn with me to Exodus chapter 2 and verse 23. Last week we jumped into a new series studying the book of Exodus. If you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to head to calvarybible.com and watch the message downloaded on our podcast. There was a lot of helpful background information that helped us understand how this family that bears the name Israel has come into Egypt and found themselves enslaved to this bitter and ruthless ruler named Pharaoh, and how God had made a promise to this group of people through their forefathers, through a man named Abraham, and and then his son Isaac, and then his son Jacob, who God changed Jacob's name to become Israel. And the plan and the promise and the purposes of God were fleshed out over hundreds of years until we found ourselves in Exodus chapter 1, and we learned about this evil supervillain named Pharaoh. He is afraid of the people of Israel, and he's trying to keep them from growing larger by forcing them into back-breaking and soul-crushing slavery. But here we are in Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. It's amazing to think that in the midst of their slavery, that God, the creator of all things, the most amazing being in the entire universe, would hear their cry for rescue. Imagine how many of them must have been crying out. How could, how could God make sense of all the cries that he was hearing? A few months ago during our 130 days of prayer, we had a, a prayer night here in this room. There were probably 100 people who joined us, and we prayed silently and we prayed corporately, and there were some moments where we gathered into groups and we prayed together out loud for the needs in our group. And I will admit, please don't judge me, that for a moment I, I stopped paying attention to what was going on in my group and I just listened to all the voices in the room who were praying, all of them at one time. I I couldn't make sense of what was saying, of, of what everybody was saying. It's kind of like when you're in a restaurant. (laughs) 
and it just sounds like noise, background noise. But not to God. God, it says, heard their groaning. He heard their cries. He listened to their cry for rescue from slavery. Imagine everything that he hears, every language, millions of people who are crying out to him. One of the most special things about being a pastor is the opportunity to hear people's stories, to hear what's going on in each of your lives. Sometimes it's awesome and sometimes it can be tragic and sad and difficult and and there's just a weight of hearing all of the needs of the people here in this church. And imagine that God hears all of the needs of all of the people for all time. He never gets overwhelmed. He never stops listening. He handles all of it. And the reality that, that God hears us should motivate us to speak to Him. One of the psalm writers says in Psalm 116, I love the Lord because He has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because He inclined His ear to me. Therefore, I will call on Him as long as I live. He has heard my voice out of the millions of voices who cry out to Him. Out of all the shouts to God, all the cries for help, all the pleas for mercy, the psalmist says, He has heard my voice. And because he listens, we should talk to him. He never stops listening. He's not like a parent who sometimes gets annoyed when their kids ask for things. Like, go away, just, just give me a moment here. No, God always listens. He always hears us. And it even says, back in our text, that he heard their groaning. Like, not even a specific prayer request, but that he heard their groaning, like the deep cry of their soul from the pit of their stomach that isn't even articulated as words. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 8, how God could even decipher groaning. He says this, Likewise, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words." Sometimes we don't even know what to pray, but God prays for us. So God hears us, and he also remembers. It says, God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God remembers his covenant, his promise that he had made with this people. It's irrevocable, and it had nothing to do with what they had done. He simply stepped into the life of Abraham and said, I will make a covenant with you because of who I am, not because of who you are and what you have done. God never forgets. But you say, well, well, this verse sounds like God needs to be reminded, doesn't it? There's a difference between needing to be reminded of something and remembering something. Like, I remember every day of my life that I am married to Lindsay. I never forget that. I don't have to be reminded of it, but I constantly remember it. Every day when I wake up, I just know and remember that I have made a covenantal promise to Lindsay. I actually made it right here. We promised to follow God together, to love each other. I never forget that. God's a little bit better at remembering things 
than we are, and He remembers every promise that He has ever made. Promises like, He will never leave you nor forsake you. Promises like, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Promises like, do not fear. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, the Word of God says. God tells us to trust in Him with all of our heart, to lean not on our own understanding, and to, in all of our ways, acknowledge Him. And He promises to make our paths straight as we do that. God never forgets a promise. He always remembers. So God heard their groaning. God remembered His covenant. And then third, it says, God saw the people of Israel. God saw. He bore witness to what was happening to them. He saw the ways that Pharaoh was enslaving them, that he was being ruthless with them, that he had committed them to bitter acts of servitude. God saw it. He witnessed it. He knew what was happening. He wasn't aloof. He wasn't distant. He wasn't unfamiliar with what was going on in the lives of his people. God saw it with his eyes. The Bible says there is nowhere on earth that we can go and hide from God. Proverbs 15 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Sometimes we need to remember as evil is happening in our midst that God sees it, that God watches what happens, that God bears witness to what's occurring. And similarly, that he sees the good that happens in the world. He sees the ways in which God-fearing people step in and put a stop to evil. The ways in which, through the common grace of God, people do the right thing, even if they don't follow him. But God sees it all. There's no place we can go to hide from him. There's no place we can go to escape him. There's no place we can go where we are truly alone. God is always there always watching, always with us. And God always sees what's happening in our lives. What God saw specifically was the people of Israel. It wasn't just some general seeing of what was happening in the world, but he specifically looked on the problems that the people of Israel were facing, and he was concerned because of what Pharaoh was doing. So God heard their cries, their groaning. God remembered his covenant. God saw his people. And then Exodus chapter 2 closes by saying, and God knew. God knew. God knew what? All of these other verbs that we've seen in, in these two verses have an object. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant. God saw the people and then it's like, is, is a word missing here? God knew what? Did he just know the details of what was going on? Did he just know the names of the people he w- that were impacted? The word know, especially in the Old Testament, means intimate knowledge. Another place where that verb is used is to describe when Adam knew his wife Eve and they conceived. This is the most intimate relationship between two persons. That's what know means in this verse. That God knew deeply what his people were facing. 
what they, were, what they were up against. He didn't just hear about it. He didn't just see it from a distance. But God knew. Maybe one of the most unhelpful things we can tell a person when they're going through something difficult is like, I know exactly what you're going through. Has anybody ever said that to you? You think like, you have no idea what I'm going through. Why would you say that? That's so unhelpful. But God knows. God knows exactly what you're going through. God knows the ways you've been mistreated. God knows the ways you feel alone. God knows the ways you've been hurt or harmed or wronged. He knows all of it. He knows exactly what you're going through in the most intimate, beautiful, relational way that we can imagine. God knows his people. And so we see the beautiful character of who God is, that he is not some distant creator who has just set the world into motion and now pays no attention to it, but that he is actively involved in what's happening, that he is intimately aware of what's going on and that he cares. Because God hears and because he remembers and because he sees and he knows what is going on in the lives of the nation of Israel, he is now, at the end of Exodus chapter 2, going to do something about it. See, when God's people cry out, God steps in. When his people cry out, God steps in and does something. He doesn't sit idly by to leave them to figure it out on his own, on their own. He steps in. And we are going to watch the book of Exodus shift in, verses, in chapters 1 and 2 where it seems like God is absent, God is off the scene, and suddenly God is going to become the central figure of this story. Everything changes on these verses. Everything shifts because God will step in in His way, in His time, and for His glory. In chapter 3, He's going to step in in a big way. In fact, I would encourage you this week to read ahead a little bit. Just read chapter 3 and watch the link that happens a couple times in chapter 3 between God hearing, God remembering, God seeing, and God knowing, and how chapter 3 references back to those verbs and what God does as he raises up a deliverer, a deliverer named Moses. And the reason why I wanted to spoil the ending of chapter 2 is because as we walk through the story of Moses, briefly, who he is, where he came from, I want us to see it through the lens of God stepping in, of God hearing the cries of his people and doing something about it. Because we have to understand, as we learn more about Moses, as we learn more about Pharaoh, as we read about all these people, we have to be reminded that God is the central figure, the central character in the book of Exodus. So we're going to reach back a little bit to Exodus chapter 1 to remind ourselves of what was happening and the context in which Moses is born. So remember, we saw last week that they were enslaved and that the people of God continue to multiply no matter what Pharaoh does. He ruthlessly enslaves them. They keep multiplying and they're fruitful because that's the plan of God for them. And then in verse 15 from chapter 1, it says, Then the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, 
When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave, he gave them families. So imagine this, the, the context in which Moses is born and the decision that his parents have made to bring a baby into this world. He either, well, he, he will be enslaved, and they know that they have a 50-50 shot of their baby being killed. Who brings a child into a world like that? Only people who deeply trust the plan and the promise of God. That God will keep his promise. That God will fulfill his plan that his people will be fruitful and multiply. And he does that through two beautiful women named Shifra and Pua, these, these two Hebrew midwives. And so quickly, what is it that sets them apart? Look at verse 17. It says, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. These two beautiful women feared God above all else. Now, we hear the word fear, and we think of being scared, of being terrified. But the Bible talks about fear in kind of two different ways. One is dread. We saw last week that the nation of Egypt lived in dread of the people of Israel because they were multiplying and becoming stronger and there were so many of them and Pharaoh didn't know what to do, so out of fear, he subjects them to racist slavery. Now, that's one way that the Bible talks about fear. And in fact, if you don't know God, there is, in some sense, the Bible says, that you should live in dread of Him because of how powerful and awesome He is. But the Bible invites us to fear God in a different way, instead of dread, through devotion. And that's what these Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua, did. They were devoted to God. Their allegiance was to Him over all other things. They prioritized God in their life. He was the central focus. They worshipped Him. They obeyed Him. They lived in awe of Him. And they thwarted Pharaoh's plan. So Pharaoh escalates it. After he scolds the Hebrew midwives, at the end of, of chapter 1, in verse 22, Pharaoh commanded all of his people, all of his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Pharaoh goes from having kind of a, a secret agreement, he thinks, with the midwives to murder these boys in secret. They disobey him, it doesn't work. So then he makes a public proclamation to the entire land. If you see a Hebrew boy, throw him in the Nile River. Pharaoh seeks to enslave people and to destroy life. Who does he remind you of? This is the ultimate battle that we see play out in the book of Exodus. The battle between God Almighty and Satan and his purposes. That he seeks to destroy life. That he seeks to enslave people to sin and to bondage and to slavery. And God will be victorious. 
But this is the context into which Moses is born. Brutal enslavement and a 50-50 chance that he may not make it out alive. So now, we are at verse 1 of Exodus chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took it as his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. That just waterproofed this basket. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him from me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Does it surprise us that God would use Pharaoh's plan against him? That he would deliver this baby boy from a basket floating down the river? In a great commentary on the book of Exodus written by Philip Ryken, he says, At one moment in history... God's entire plan for triumphing over evil was riding down the Nile River in a little papyrus basket. Why would God do such a thing? The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God is shaming Pharaoh. He's He's demonstrating that he's just simply a pawn that God holds in his hand. He's making him look silly. Simultaneously, he is making himself look strong. Because Pharaoh enslaves and destroys, but God brings life to the dead. And he rescues or slaves or saves those of us who are enslaved. See, what we see in the opening verses of chapter 2 is that Moses is born under a death sentence and born into slavery. And the basket that he travels down in our text, the word for basket is used only one other time in the Old Testament. It's to describe the ark that God commands that Noah would build in Genesis chapter 6 through 9. And what did the ark do? The ark the ark saved Noah and his family from the wrath of God, from judgment, from death. And that's what God is doing here with Moses. He is demonstrating that, that he is saving him through this little ark that's floating down the Nile River, right into the hands of Pharaoh's daughter. So in verse 10 in Exodus chapter 2, it says, when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Being thrown into the Nile River was a death penalty for a Hebrew boy. But Pharaoh's daughter draws him out of this river of death 
and essentially raises Moses to new life. Just like God draws us out of our sin and gives us new life and saves us from certain death. Is there any question as the rest of Exodus unfolds about who will be victorious, Pharaoh or God? So Moses grows up, and very quickly, verse 11 says, one day when he had grown up, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Moses is now probably 40 years old, according to Acts chapter 7. He had been raised as a prince. He had all the education that would have gone with it, all the luxuries of living in Pharaoh's palace, and one day he steps out of there and goes to be amongst his people. And he looks upon their burdens. And what he sees is devastating. He sees these people who are bitterly enslaved. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, it says, one of his people, and it enrages Moses. And he looks around and thinks there's nobody there, and he kills the Egyptian and buries him in the sand. And the next day, maybe feeling kind of proud of himself, he comes back to see his people again, and he watches two Hebrews who get into a fight, and he tries to intercede, and one of them says to him, you're not the boss of me. You think you can kill us like you killed that Egyptian? And then Moses realizes that he's been found out, and out of fear, he flees to Midian, which is east of the Sinai Peninsula. And as he travels there far away to escape the wrath of Pharaoh who had heard about this and was seeking to kill Moses, he finds himself in a, in a land that was filled with farmers and shepherds. And one day he comes upon a well and finds seven sisters who are trying to water their livestock. And this gang of punk shepherds come up and try and chase the sisters away. And Moses intercedes. But this time, rather than trying to take life into his hands, he just stands in between these shepherds and these young women, and he delivers them. He brings them safety, and he eventually waters their livestock for them as he chases away the shepherds. And the seven sisters go home and tell their father about it, and they say this in verse 19. They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. We see in the in the early verses about the life of Moses, the foreshadowing that Moses will be the deliverer that God is raising up to rescue his people. This is the answer to the cry for rescue that has come up to God. Moses, the deliverer, who God will use to deliver his people. So the dad says, this guy sounds great. Why don't we have him over for dinner? They come over, he comes over for dinner. He falls in love with one of his daughters. They get married. They have a family. And they are in Midian for another 40 years. So Moses is 80 years old when we come to the end of Exodus chapter 2 and we read this. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help and their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. 80 years, God has been preparing Moses as the answer to their cry for rescue from slavery. So I hope we see that, that when our cry rises up to God, God has already been doing something about it. When we cried out for rescue from our slavery to sin, God had already stepped in, hadn't he? 
before we could even utter a cry to God about our sin, before we even knew that we were sinful, before we even knew that there was a God in heaven, God had done something about it through His Son, Jesus Christ. He had already raised up a deliverer on our behalf. That deliverer had already gone to the cross and paid the penalty that we deserved to pay. Before the first cry even came out of our mouth, the day we were born, God had stepped in for us. Before the universe was even created, if you are a believer, your name was written in the book of life by the hand of God. God had made a way even before Moses came on the scene. Even before Pharaoh had enslaved his people, God had ultimately stepped in and made a way and made a plan that he would fulfill through the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus, just like Moses, looked on his people from the palace of heaven and came down for us and saw us and saw our needs. And he remembered all the promises that God had made. He remembered all the names that they had written down in the book of life. And he went to the cross because of who he is, because he knows, because he knows you. He knows everything about you. He knows every place you've been, everything you've done, every cry of your heart. And he has stepped in, stepped into a place that none of us could ever step for ourselves. And he calls us to remember what he has done. That's why we celebrate communion together so that we remember the greatest act of stepping in that has ever occurred, the death of Jesus Christ. He says, as often as you are together, do this, eat this bread, drink this cup, in remembrance of me. Remember what I have done for you, so that you might never forget. If you're helping with communion, would you come forward and let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the ways that you have stepped in to save us. For the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. For his work on the cross. For his resurrection. His new life from the dead. For all that you have accomplished for us through him, we remember now. And we pray that as we remember it, that our faith would be strengthened, that our confidence in who you are and all of your promises would be sure and stable because you are a God who knows us, who loves us, who steps into the mess of our life to help us. As we eat this bread, we worship you. We thank you for the body of Christ that was freely given for us. We eat now in his name and for your glory, God. We all pray. Amen.